It's Sunday morning. Time for some jazz. Got a fresh pot of coffee on. Full mug of Java. Ready to start my day. Loaded up on Benadryl and antidepressants. I think this should be a fun adventure, don't you? Let's get the show started, shall we? Let's see where this journey takes us. Let's start today's show with a classic from Stanley Turrentine from the album Sugar, the title track Sugar, released in November of 1970, originally recorded at the Van Gelder Studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. I hope you enjoy this cut. I certainly do. It is, quite literally, one of his very best.
Stanley Turrentine, a.k.a. the original Mr. T. That particular track was from, as I said earlier, his 1970 release, released in November of 1970 from the album of the same title, Sugar, featuring a who's who of jazz, the brilliant Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Dr. Lonnie Smith on electric piano, Butch Cornell on the organ, and the brilliant George Benson on guitar. Now, it would be remiss of me if I did not tell you about Ron Carter on the bass and Billy Kay on the drums, the late, great Stanley Turrentine. The album is universally regarded as Stanley's very best, and I think the title track itself just leads to leave you with that impression. It is an outstanding recording from start to finish, and it was his bestseller. He had left Blue Note at the time and was recording under the CTI label. Of course, even though it was recorded at the Van Gelder studio, Rudy Van Gelder had no hand in this recording. It was produced by Creed Taylor, and of course CTI is Creed Taylor Incorporated, his very own label. Started in 1967 as a subsidiary for A&M Records, it broke away, becoming independent in 1970. If you're a fan of bossa nova jazz, you can largely thank Mr. Creed Taylor for being mostly responsible for introducing it to North America. He signed artists from Brazil to his own label and really helped to expose that type of jazz as it was not widely known in North America at the time. 
Mr. Taylor is still very much with us at the age of 91. Don't think he's too active in recording these days, but he's, uh, yeah, still going strong after all these years. In regards to the album, Sugar, Mr. Stanley Turrentine, it was his first for CTI Records. As I said, he had broken away from Blue Note and really went off in a different direction. Stanley was uh, quite famous for starting to heavily influence the jazz fusion period in the early 1970s. He uh, was widely renowned for his distinctively thick, rippling tone and earthy grounding in the blues. That, of course, was a description provided to you from critic Steve Huey. Stanley originally hailed from uh, Pittsburgh, and he was born into a musical family. His father, uh, Thomas Sternteen Sr., he was a sax player with Al Cooper's Savoy Sultans, and his mother played stride piano, while his older brother, Tommy Turrentine, became a professional trumpet player. He really was destined for greatness. Sadly, he passed away in uh, September of 2000, at the age of 66, from a stroke. Such a shame, because I think the man had a, a lot more music left in him. He is on over 200 recordings, about 40 as a band leader, just under one label. Under multiple other labels? Well, he has about 100 recordings in total as a band leader. As a sideman, probably another 100 to 150. And he was featured um, on Diana Krall's album, Only Trust Your Heart, in 1994. The man is widely, widely known. And maybe now you know him too. The late, great Stanley Turrentine. Okay, time to change it up just a little bit. Uh, not a massive departure, but a slight departure from what we just heard. From the 1966 album, Adam's Apple, this is the great Wayne Shorter with Footprints.
Shorter, featuring Herbie Hancock on piano, from 1966, from the album Adam's Apple, Footprints. Now that song has become an absolute jazz standard, as I'm sure you can understand why when you hear the unique multimodal time signatures throughout. It goes from 3-4 to 6-8 to 12-8 to 6-8 and 4-4 all at the same time. You can hear the oscillating rhythms throughout, of course featuring the brilliant piano work of Mr. Herbie Hancock. Now Wayne Shorter is still alive but he hasn't been that well, and as a result, he's had to retire from playing after nearly 70 years of performing and recording. Rather sad that he just can't do it anymore. That being said, he, is, uh, he set out to create a, a new operatic work titled Iphigenia, with Esperanza Spalding writing the libretto, and architect Frank Gehry designing the sets. It is scheduled to premiere in the uh, autumn of 2021. So fingers crossed that we get COVID behind us and can move forward with some new music from the great Wayne Shorter. Wayne, as I stated earlier, has been recording and performing for almost 70 years. He started in 1952 after graduating from high school. His father encouraged him to take up clarinet, but his older brother Alan played alto sax before switching to trumpet. Wayne picked up the sax and never looked back. Now his influences include Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, and the great Coleman Hawkins. He was part of Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers for about four years before he became the band's musical director. He did record with, um, record and tour with Miles Davis from 1964 to 1970. Harry Hancock said of um, Wayne Shorter's tenure with Davis, uh, Miles Davis' second great quintet, the master writer to me in that group was Wayne Shorter. He still is a master. Wayne was one of the few people who brought music to Miles that didn't get changed. Now that is very high praise indeed. Okay, I'm going to change it up a fair bit this time. This will be a left turn, if you will, featuring the uh, great Wes Montgomery. This is West Coast Blues. Thank you. 
from the late, great Wes Montgomery. That, of course, is one of the standout tracks on the album, The Incredible Jazz Guitar of Wes Montgomery. Released in April of 1960 and recorded in over a two-day stint in January of 1960, regarded as one of the greatest jazz guitar albums of all time. About the CD reissue, critic Chris May of All About Jazz wrote, The incredible jazz guitar burst onto the U.S. scene in 1960 like a benign hurricane. And it still sounds like a gale almost 50 years later. Montgomery, emphatically accompanied by pianist Tommy Flanagan, bassist Percy Heath, and drummer Albert Heath, makes the guitar sound like it never had before. It has sounded similar since, of course, thanks to the legion of Montgomery-influenced players, but rarely so close to perfection. The incredible jazz guitar endures, and it will continue to do so. Well, I think that does sum it up pretty well. I cannot argue with that statement. The album itself is brilliant from start to finish. And West Coast Blue has been, without a doubt, one of the standout tracks on the record. As I stated, uh, Wes uh, passed away in 1968. He died of a heart attack. He was only 45 years of age at the time. So it's such a shame because I'm sure there was decades of music left in the man. Now, just sort of um, six degrees of separation here. The actor, Anthony Montgomery, you may remember him from the... uh, TV series Star Trek Enterprise. He played the part of Ensign Travis Mayweather. He's also been featured on General Hospital for a number of years. He was uh, Wes Montgomery's, or is, I should say, Wes Montgomery's grandson. The incredible jazz guitar of Wes Montgomery. That album in 2017 was selected for the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or artistically significant. And without question, he uh, he used some unique techniques on that. One of his most distinguishing ones is known as thumb-picking. The man taught himself to play guitar, and it all stemmed from a show he had seen uh, with his wife. He was at a dance, I guess it was, and... Uh, He heard Charlie Christian, he heard a Charlie Christian record, I should say, for the very first time. This motivated him to buy a guitar the next day. For nearly a year, I guess, uh, night and day, he he tried to imitate Christian and teach himself the guitar. He said he never had any intention to become a musician. He just felt obligated to learn after buying a guitar. He had no formal instruction, and in, in one of the... Aspects I think many have of great musicianship, he couldn't read a note. Which, I guess in his instance, made him a better player. Because he was not bound by the restrictions that one oftentimes feels placed upon oneself when learning to play. It was in 1948 when Wes was heard by Lionel Hampton, who had been looking for a guitar player at the time, and ended up hiring him. Wes spent two years with the band. Fear kept him from flying 
As, uh, he, he was deathly afraid to fly, so he drove from city to city and town to town. Yes, other musicians were absolutely marveled at his stamina. When he arrived at a club, the first thing he would do was call home to his wife and family. He was given the opportunity to play with the great Charles Mingus, but not the opportunity he hoped for. And I guess he, uh, he returned home a much better player. The great Wes Montgomery. So I'm going to remain in the jazz guitar idiom for one more cut. This is from the 1963 recording, released in February of 1965, recorded at the Van Gelder Studio in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey. The title cut from the album Idle Moments.
1963 and released in 1965 from the album with the same title. That's Idle Moments from Grant Green. Now the track was written by a Plunote in-house producer, Duke Pearson, who was also a pianist on that album. Clocking in at just under 15 minutes, Duke Pearson had no intention for that track to be that long. I guess what had happened was there was some confusion in the studio about whether the chorus would consist of 16 or 32 bars. Well, the producer Alfred Lyon was satisfied with the take. He did suggest that they do a revert, a retake of it, to try and fit the song into a seven-minute window. However, the song had a really special feel to it, and all the subsequent retakes just didn't capture that feeling. So they tossed them out and kept the original. The late Grant Green, Idle Moments. Okay, one more track for today. This one is from uh, Benny Golson. This song is titled Killer Joe. Thank you. 
the great Benny Golson, tenor saxophonist extraordinaire, from his 2004 album, Terminal One, which was a tie-in with the film The Terminal, featuring Tom Hanks. Benny Golson actually has a cameo in the film towards the end of it. If you've seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now that particular cut you heard, Killer Joe, that was the 50th anniversary of the song, as it was first written and recorded in 1954. But Benny thought he'd update it a little bit in 2004 and put it out on his record, ter uh, Terminal One. At the age of 92, he's still alive and healthy, and he has not officially retired. So hopefully, once COVID is behind us, Maybe I can fly down to New York City to see him play. Time will tell. So that brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you've enjoyed the time we've spent together today. And wherever you are in this world, I hope that you're healthy and happy and oh so very relaxed. Until we meet again, my friends. Take care. Bye.